This is a Business Radio special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. From the floor of Radio Row in Miami, Florida, ahead of Super Bowl 54. Here are your hosts, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Welcome to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball. We're coming to you from Radio Row in the Miami Beach Convention Center down here for the 54th edition of the Super Bowl. It's our third time in what's becoming an annual tradition for Wharton Moneyball. This time, we have the whole crew. Cade Massey here hosting this morning with all of my faculty, colleagues, and collaborators here on Wharton Moneyball. Audie Weiner to my right and to his right, Shane Jensen on the far end, Eric Bradlow. Good afternoon, fellas. How you doing, Cade? Indeed. Doing well. It can't not be doing well when you're down here in South Beach in the middle of January, late January, instead of eastern Pennsylvania. Fellas, it's uh, always fun to be down here. This game is shaping up to be perhaps one of the most interesting ones in a while. I'm curious, as you've been thinking about it, as you've been traveling down here, as you've been poking around in the last day or two, what has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, I like your original word, Kate. I like the word perhaps. Um, if someone told me at the end of this weekend that Kansas City won by 15 to 17 points. I wouldn't, it's not my prediction, but it wouldn't be shocking if someone told me that San Francisco won because they took the lead and then they ground out the clock. And so what we have to realize is statisticians like us, we have to be in the uncertainty business, not just the prediction business. And I think there's a wide confidence interval about where this game's going to go. And do you think it's wider than it has been in, you know, say the last few years, in your opinion? I would say the answer is yes, because only because there's the classic, you know, opposing forces, the supposedly the great offense against the great defense, and so we'll actually find out. I think there's uncertainty. Let me yeah. tell you, there's only one thing that the models have converged on, and that is not the gap, which is anywhere between minus one and five, but it's the standard deviation. That's about twelve and a half. And so, th- but that, that sounds normal for NFL. That's game. normal, and that's what all the I tried to price out people's lines and turn that into probabilities. And twelve and a half seems. But Adi, maybe keep just coming for our up. listeners, so, what kind of? Let's say you're going to construct a ninety-five percent confidence prediction interval. interval for a yeah. game. So, how wide would that interval have to be? Like, let's plus or minus. So you have to take that whatever forecast you have for the difference that gets added in, and add and subtract about twelve and a half points is the range. That's a that's lot. Gigantic. That's a lot. Yep. That's what I just and said. That, that's, hold on, that's right. Let me make sure everyone's got that. So the line here is one point. We think Kansas City's favored, and lines are very efficient. So that's, that says this thing is supposed to be tight. But Adi and Eric are emphasizing that we don't really know. Things happen in football. Heck, Baltimore Ravens, number one seed in the AFC this year, got taken to the cleaners Huge surprise by there. the Titans, but really kind of within the range of things we see. So if you want to see 90 Five percent. I wasn't even doing ninety-five. I was just doing within 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 each one, range, right? One, one in each direction. What confidence does that give you if you go plus or minus twelve and a half points? You're going to say probability the score falls within twelve within twenty-five point range of the of the of the, of the interval of the expected yeah. value. That's no, but the expected value is about seventy percent. So, so I'm saying you're. Uh, I just want to make sure our listeners, because mm-hmm. Kay has has the same degree of I don't say disbelief that I do. You're saying you think there's only a 70% chance either Kansas City's going to win by 13 or San Francisco's going to win by 13 That's right. in that interval. Leaving about 30% on either side. I think wow. most people would, would not that believe bet. that. Yep, that, they would not believe it, and that's why things get mispriced. We don't put enough emphasis on variance, even on this show. We understand it better than most folks, but and we should do a service to 
by talking about it more often. There's just so much uncertainty. Even in this game, there's just so much uncertainty. Let me get allegiances out on the table. Does anybody have any strong rooting interest in this game? Well, I lived in San Francisco, so that should make me a San Francisco fan. And I'll shout out to all my old San Francisco buddies who might be cheering, but no. <laughs> I, I don't know why I can't put a I can't put it on, but I think I really am rooting for Kansas City in this game. I think it's because of Andy Reid. No, that's what I was saying. If there's a reason, it would yeah. be because of Andy Reid. Um, I just hope because you're a longtime Eagles guy. I'm a longtime Eagles guy. I worked, as you know, for the Eagles for five years with Andy Reid. So from that point of view, um, at the end of the day, though, um, I just hope it doesn't come down to a clock management situation at the end of the game because it would ruin if he botches this game again. Are you saying he's not good at that? You're trolling. I'm not. You're trolling. I'm, say, I'm all, saying after all I'm that the, love for Reid, you're going to troll him here already wow, in the first yeah. three minutes about his game management. I will just say that if that happens, unfortunately, you know, it would basically end his career in that sense. I mean, he can't withstand. Another, oh, I think he's uh, going to be back to this big game a few times if he stick. Uh, you know, if he's on that team with Patrick Mahomes, I think he's got multiple chances. I think to get this right. To be honest with you, I mean, people are. He's got a lot of love these days, and you know, we, we one of the things we'd like to see in coaches is that they learn and they change over time. And he seems to be a learner. So consider, for example, everyone's talking about shifts and motions these days. Yep, there's an advantage. Apparently, this is one of the things the analytics community is big on this year. There's an advantage to using more shift and motion, and some teams are far more into this than others. Andy Reid is someone who has changed over time towards using more motion. So apparently, he's right in the middle of the league. Well. Yeah, about the middle of the league from 2014 to 2017. And then he's been ticking up over the last couple of years. And now he's like one of the top two or three most frequent users of motion in his offense. The question is, uh, sorry to interrupt, but like the question I have when I hear something like that is, is it, has he actually changed his strategy or has he just been given personnel who are like, like, who like much better, yeah. did he always have that same kind of propensity to like, you know, for scheming, but like he's only only now been given the personnel to do something with it. It's entirely possible, but this, you're saying it a little passively. He should be given credit for that. Personnel, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. He went out yeah. And, he went out and kind of put some I, chips I have, on the table for Mahomes. I have a more physics related question. I just don't understand if this, why this is a new finding. Like, for example, aren't people running faster than people that are standing still and moving? So why wouldn't you want somebody in motion? I understand they can't be running towards the line of scrimmage. That's against the rules in the NFL. But I'm trying to understand, if you're a defender, and I'm now from a running start, I understand I'm running perpendicular to the line of scrimmage. Why wouldn't that be a known better thing? Well, I think that that's part of it, and you see that with jet sweeps these days. But another, another big part of it is just the confusion is the confusion that it sows. But it also could cause confusion on your side and make plays break. Yeah, but you're in charge of the motion, and the other guys have to try to figure True. it out. And, and the, the, kind of the original reason for it was it helps the quarterback diagnose what's going on with the, what kind of coverage they're facing. I tell you what, we could speculate about this stuff in all of our extensive experience playing football, or we could talk to someone who might be able to say something about this. So why don't we, why don't we welcome to the set now Sage Rosenfels. Sage, longtime quarterback. He started out in college with Iowa State, played 12 years in the NFL, now writes for The Athletic. He co-hosts the Purple Podcast covering Vikings football, and uh, we're delighted to have him on the show. Sage, welcome. 
Thank you for having me. I, I heard models merging, and I thought you were talking about one of these parties tonight and with the, uh, with the velvet rope of getting in or something like that. Oh, uh, We can only speculate about that as well. We're not allowed past those velvet ropes. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that was my first joke, and the second one is it's absolutely gorgeous down here, and this might be the ugliest jacket I've ever seen. In my life. Oh, are you talking about so my Tom Brady patented paper? Uh, no, I, it's, it's beautiful. It's it is really it. something yeah, you, else. I know it's a radio. The, the, the hat is equally ugly. Oh. It's a Red Sox hat. Just, I, just you know, it's out. classic, it so classic. I'm okay with it. Even though I'm not a Red Sox fan, I, I appreciate the classic stuff, right. you know. So it's it's amazing how many sports teams. The NFL does a great job of really ruining baseball hats. I mean, yeah. they do a fantastic <laughs> is, job, and then people actually buy them. It blows my mind, but yeah. it is what it is. So Sage, before we talk about this Super Bowl, tell us a little bit about the Vikings. You cover these guys. You do a show maybe three days a week. Yeah, I do a three day a week show in Minneapolis for the Score North. Uh, it's so like, let me say up front. I mean, there's just so much. I feel so much sympathy. I lived in Buffalo for a couple of years, yeah. and those two franchises just can't quite get over. It's not just those two. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. You but know they, what I mean? Yeah, they get, they get, they get they closer get, than most. Here's the difference is the Vikings, uh, sort of the general feel in, in amongst Vikings fans is that it's a well-run organization, right? Which means that they don't usually have the two and 14 seasons and the three and, right. and whatever uh, uh uh, 13 seasons, and so they're usually at the worst, like eight and eight. And a lot of times mm-hmm. they're ten and six or eleven and five, and so they just never get that top tier talent. They never get the top quarterback. They never get the top left tackle. Or and not only that is, you know, like this year I think they're picking 25th in this draft. I mean that's almost a second rounder, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so there's that issue where they never get that sort of the top tier stuff, and that, and it's not just the first round. It sort of it trickles away, and and you know some teams. San Francisco is a class team of they got lucky last year mm-hmm. that Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt. Right. Jimmy Garoppolo getting right. hurt last year is one of the reasons they're in the Super Bowl this year mm-hmm. is because they go out and have those top picks in the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, really the last two years they've had really, really high picks. And, of course, a lot of those guys have really hit. Uh, but sometimes you do – you know, I, 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 never, I don't think it will ever happen in the NFL where people actually really try to lose, like in sort of the NBA, to get like the top Dol- guys. Dolphins didn't start out that – maybe the front office? The front office did, but the players the not. Players, yeah. you know, because yeah. players listen, didn't cooperate. Every single play you're out there, you be, you're being judged not just by your team. Yeah. You're being judged by every every single team is watching every single game yeah, and every yeah, single yeah. player is rated, right? Yeah. And with the world of PFF and all that stuff. So, yeah, the, the team might trade off our left tackle and trade off this guy or whatever, but I'm trying to make as much money as I can the NFL. I'm trying to make the team next year. I'm trying to build a career yep. so guys are going to play as hard as possible. And that segues into what we were talking about earlier, which is there's so much randomness in a game. If everyone's out there trying as hard as they can, it's hard to lose every game. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, 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 you know, as you always say, there's 53 guys in the roster and, you know, they're all NFL players, whether you like it or not. And some teams obviously have better rosters than, than the other. But at the end of the day, the NFL is actually set up. So everybody ends up eight and eight by the way they do the draft, by the way they do the some of the free Salary agent type cap. stuff or guys that get cut and waivers and things to, to have the worst teams to sort of build them up in the salary cap, of course, and all those things. And so, yeah, it's it's even when teams are way better than the other. It's it, the any given Sunday thing is more uh, legit, I think, in the NFL than any other sport. So, by the way, since we remind me, let's just put a, a little underscore on this one. Uh, the preseason, it was tank for Tua. Yeah. And now they've, they've, they've risen all the way to the fifth pick, and now people are still projecting Tua because Tua's <laughs> dropped right, up. Yeah. They might still get Tua. Yeah. So, Sage, let me ask you, um, you know, in Philadelphia, we obviously have the Sixers, and they told people to trust the process, so we bottomed out to get top picks. When you talk about the Vikings, they've never really kind of sunk to the bottom. I can't remember the last time. Have the Vikings ever had home field? Like, when's the last time they've host home field 
let's say, in the NFC champ? Have they been the one or two seed in the NFC? My view is their floor has been high, but their ceiling's been low. Yeah, I, I think the, was it was it the 98, Look, 99, 98, that, that Falcons yeah. That's deal. 20 years ago yeah, now. That was yeah. it. When I was uh, 2009, I backed up Favre. All right, we went 12-4, and four, had the number two seed. Uh, and lost to the Saints, and you know, of course, you guys know that game—the the Bounty Gate game down in New Orleans in mm-hmm. overtime. So, home field advantage. And, and listen, Vikings fans—I never really, really, I grew up from Iowa, you know, and I, you know, grew up. My dad was a sort of Chicago. My dad's from Chicago Bears fan, but Vikings fans are truly incredible. I, I don't think people really, you know, people put certain teams of having like the best fans. Mm-hmm. I was down in Kansas City this year. I, I don't know what it was, about week seven or something like that. And, and, and you know, it's a six-hour drive, six-and-a-half-hour drive from Minneapolis to Kansas City. I would say, and I'm up in the, the Kansas City press box, you're way up there. And so you really see, like, this whole big bulb underneath you. 30% of the fans, at oh minimum, my. and I'm being, oh like, my. sort of conservative measurement, were wearing purple that okay. day. Wow. Uh, so, so the home field advantage for the Vikings, the Saints, was huge. And, you know, that, that one game – uh, you know, sort of was the difference that season. I think if we have home field advantage, we do we do get the Super Bowl in 2009. We're talking to Sage Rosenfels, longtime NFL quarterback, now writes for the Athletic, covers the the, my, my, the Minnesota Vikings with his Purple Podcast. He's also a founder of Quarterback Collective, developing younger athletes. While we're on quarterbacks, and while we're on the Kansas City Chiefs, what I mean, what is there new to say about Patrick Mahomes, and what are you expecting for him? Not just this weekend, but like going forward, what do you see him? You you played quarterback. You evaluate quarterback. Yeah, that's this is like this is my my strike zone, right? <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. From from almost high school on, when I see these kids, and and I'm lucky enough to do this quarterback collective stuff where we do a camp in LA. We had 12 NFL coaches at it last year. Okay, all right. We had three head coaches, not including Mike Shanahan. We had Sean McVay and, and Matt Lafleur. Kyle Shanahan shows up, and of course all these assistants. You know the, the whole cup of coffee thing of, of yeah. Sean McVay. Yeah. You've yeah. named by the way guys. some very successful coaches. <laughs> not this bad. Is just that's, a random set of coaches. and just sort of random. You know, I played for Kyle in 2009, and Matt LaFleur was quality control, and Mike McDaniel was quality control, and Robert Sala was quality control, and, you know, D'Amico Ryans, who's the linebacker's coach there, was our rookie linebacker. I mean, about three-quarters of the San Francisco staff was I – mean, even the even the tr- uh, the equipment manager was our <laughs> Houston equipment manager, and he got let go or something, and San Francisco picked him up. So That's fine. Uh, it's – so having that connection with Kyle – and in my career, I had 12 starts, right, over 12 years, right? Pretty, pretty amazing. <laughs> um, ten of those were in Houston. I was okay. six and four as a starter. Okay. Three of those losses were to the Colts, all right? And one was to the, uh, to the Ravens, okay? So that was the first time in my career, and it was actually year six, where I really felt after working with Kyle yep. and, and Gary Kubiak, where I really felt I can do this. Like, I can really play in the NFL. Like, I can start games. I can start a season. I can, you know, compete with these, you know, top 32 guys or whatever. Before that, I was, you know, just trying to make the roster. It's a third guy. Try to move up to the second guy uh, with, with Nick Saban in 2005. But once I started playing in the system, it, he really, Kyle does an amazing job of making – uh, the game as easiest as possible on the hardest position. Okay. Talk and I think about- that's a f- philosophy that people don't understand. I know the quarterback is supposed to be the best player, yada, yada, but you're not always going to get the best player. Like what they do in Chicago, they're in shotgun all the time. They're asking Mitchell Trubisky to be the best player. They're asking mm-hmm. to be Peyton Manning or be Pat Mahomes. Mm-hmm. He's simply not. Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, they should run much more of a really like a a Minnesota Viking style is, of offense. Or San Francisco. What San Francisco has done this year. Similar, where they've well, kind of, they're the same. It's Kubiak. I mean, Kubiak yeah. is like the uh, the the um, 
the older version, and then Kyle Shanahan is like the new and improved model with all the little upgrades, right? That's Say, sort tell of how us they, what it is that makes it. it simpler for a quarterback in those systems. Well, one, having a running game right. Right, is that is it's the it's the only thing where the the quarterback has the least amount of responsibility in the sure. running game right I, all he has to basically do is get the snap and hand it off or basically go okay the safety's down to my right so i get to run the ball to the left but you're really not doing anything physically that's all that demanding yep. Yep. right so if anytime there's a run play call that's successful that's easier on the quarterback all right play action and bootlegs those are easier on the quarterback because the hardest thing to do in an nfl offense is to drop back pass it's the hardest thing to do why is that from under center? Have or you from seen the, sh- the freaks of nature on the other side yeah. of the football? I mean, just Daniel just Hunter and these guys at the time. Freaks are on both sides. Come on. Yeah, you know, but, but, <laughs> but those guys are paid million, tens of millions of dollars to rush the quarterback. Yeah. And they become like uh, like uh, uh, like jedis at it you know what i mean i mean they are they're like ninjas i mean they're, they you know they know every single sack literally means like millions of dollars for them and the offensive lineman just sort of can't keep up with that it's just not possible and and if you went to the numbers of like college football you know 120 major college football teams plus all the fcs teams or whatever and then also in the NFL, you don't just play for four years like you do in college. So all those numbers, all the, the, the premier pass rushers get sort of whittled down to a yeah. few, and then they play for 10 or 12 years, right? So the guys that are there are really, really, really good. So the hardest thing is to drop back pass because they're just, boom, they're coming at you. But when they have to play the run first. And so if I describe football to people and why the run's so important, if you broke down football to the most basics of, of like, you know, we're in the backyard and we got 11 guys on a side or whatever, you would never throw the football if you didn't have to. If you don't have to throw the football and you can win the game, you should never throw the ball, okay? Because there's so many bad things that can happen in throwing the football. Mm-hmm. Not just, a, you know, a sack and a fumble and interceptions. And, but, you know, things that are weird like tip passes or a, a receiver slips or just there's more variables, right, in the passing game. The running game is pretty much handed off and you can control the situation. Mm-hmm. If you broke down in the backyard as we're playing this game, everybody on the defense has to have a gap in the running game. And if you brought the receivers all the way down next to the tight ends on each side, there's a gap for everybody with a deep free safety, which is basically takes responsibility of the, of the quarterback, right? That, that's the even thing there. So there literally is a gap there. What Kyle does and, and, and Mike McDaniel, the, the sort of the, the run game guru, and John Benton, the old line coach, again, John, another guy who was in Houston with me, they find ways to get people out of their gaps. Mm-hmm. And once you see two D linemen next to each other, or a D lineman and a linebacker like next to each other, you know, in some sort of replay, mm-hmm. somebody's out of a gap. And if I, you saw that trap, that Mostert trap, the first third and eight of the game, that was the exact look they wanted. And if you remember the trap, uh, the, the, play, the, the guard came over, he trapped a linebacker, and there were two guys. There was a linebacker, and then there was a, the defensive end outside of him. Again, somebody's outside of their gap. Mm-hmm. The 49ers do a great job of that. And, uh, and that's where that stretch game is so valuable. But, again, in that stretch game stuff, the 49ers have also had these, I don't know if you guys know this, the smallest offensive line in the NFL. Do you guys know that? No. Number two, 40, uh, the uh, uh, Minnesota Vikings. Pretty amazing. Two teams that can really run the football. I thought you had to have, like, 350-pound guys to run the football in this league. No, it's actually about gaps. And that outside stuff, it's more about quickness okay. and technique. Okay. And I think, again, that's where, again, like the John Benton, the line coach, and McDaniel, those guys do a phenomenal job of – Great technique. I mean, there really are sort of so, surgeons. It's, it, it, it truly is. I watched, uh, uh, I watched the 49ers 
uh, game the other day, the championship game with the Sports Illustrated people. And it truly is the persistent, you know, people always call it, this is a coaching, this is a coaching clinic tape type of deal. What the 49ers do, if you want to understand running game and, and zone running game, it really is coaching clinic type okay. stuff. So, Sage, um, obviously since we're an analytics show, Wharton Moneyball, you know that the analytics say that running should be, you know, not out, Dated, it's but in it, service it, to it, passing. Yeah, it's a service to passing. So what don't what do you think the analytics is not picking up that like what are the nuances that you know, because the passing game is according to analytics, that's what teams should be doing more and more of. So what what's it what's it, what are analytics? And and one possibility could be as you're sort of saying, that there's only a couple teams like San Francisco that have the kind of scheming where running really can be such an effective complement to the passing. And so we're sort of seeing overall the analytics are saying passing is is superior, but that's only because so many teams are running poorly. What is the one issue that numbers never really take into consideration just in everything, in whether it's business or Wall Street or whatever? Emotion. All right, there's an emotional aspect of running the football on somebody. When you line up and you get seven yards, man, we're kicking your tails in. If you throw a pass and get seven yards, the defense is like, hey, we got off the hook. They threw a pass. They only got seven yards. It's actually not a great feeling in the offense. There's an emotional aspect to this game that I think the analytics don't always take into account. And again, and then that sort of that risk versus reward thing of running the football versus throwing the football. All right, Sage, we're about to have to let you go, but we've talked about this young, new generation of coaches. While we have you in particular, I want to ask about the next generation of coaches. Arguably the hottest coach in college football right now is your alumni. Your, yes, your, Matt your, Campbell. Matt Campbell down at Iowa State. What is it that makes him such a good coach? Because I think we're going to be talking about him for a long time. Because he stole the trust the process thing from the Philadelphia 76ers <laughs> is what he did. He, he has the, the trust the process deal. He what is does that the, mean to him? It means... Um, work every day and appreciate the journey and not just look at the destination all the time. Okay. And we like to look at the destination. We like to look at, we like to have things right now. It's sort of, we're in the age and with, with you know, Amazon and everything. Hey, I want something. It shows up my, my door the next day, right? So he's very, very good at creating a culture. And, and when you are, are near their locker room, on the outside of their locker room, there's a huge wall and it says culture beats scheme. Mm-hmm. And he gets his guys to play hard together you know, sometimes college football can, you know, sometimes football in general is like, it's work. Like, it's not fun. Like, lifting weights and all the drills and the off-season stuff they make you do, it's like, it's terrible work. It's physically taxing. It's exhausting. It's, you know, all those things. And he somehow makes that enjoyable enough and that we're all in this together. It's just a great sort of vibe on that football team. Unbelievable culture. Mm-hmm. The challenge is coming from smaller schools is the high level of the scheme and of the teaching and all those types of things. And I think that is one of their challenges that they have, at least on the offensive side of the football, mm-hmm. that maybe if they could improve that a little bit, add that great culture to really, really good scheme, I think they would win more than you know seven games which won this year. They have a great quarterback, by the way. Yeah, Brock right. Purdy. He's one of the exciting young quarterbacks in the game. He's very, very excited. He's got unbelievable anticipation skills. Uh, he broke all of my records. He's only a sophomore. <laughs> you know what I mean? um, but again, they throw the ball a ton, but they only went seven and six, yeah. right? My senior year, I had a 52% completion percentage and had an awesome offensive line and like three really good running backs, and we won nine games, you know? So okay. um, it they... They throw the ball a lot, but the, at, when it's you know when it's third and one, when it's third and two, because they're such a throwing football team, they can't just line up and say we're going to line up and we're going we're to get four yards on this third and three. 
you know, you, you, all it those It takes some variables. flexibility away from you. And it's more stress on the quarterback, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, anytime you can have less stress than the quarterback. And, and I think that's what helped Aaron Rodgers is there. His stats weren't all that better. But having that run game allowed them to win more football games, right? And I know you, I know you guys talk about, like, you know, it's, it's a sort of a passing league, and the analytics say this. I know this. In the NFC, the final four teams that were in, in the NFC were San Francisco, Seattle, uh, the Vikings, and Green Bay. Green Bay, all right? And Green Bay is the only one of the four that wasn't the top four rushing team. The, Dallas was the fourth mm-hmm. you know, best rushing team. Away and Green Bay even still had one of the top rushers of this year. Green Bay had a really good running back. So the value, the, all I know is in the NFC, three of the, three of the four teams remaining were three of the top four in, in the NFC in rushing. All right, well, you've given us some things. You're pushing back on some classic <laughs> analytics things. It's good for us to hear. Sage, thank you for taking the time out of your Super Bowl visit down here to, to spend with us. I really appreciate you guys having me on today. And uh, go find a different uh, coach. <laughs> <laughs> Sage Rosenfels. Maybe former... I'll send this one to the Smithsonian. <laughs> All right. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Come back. And now back to a business radio special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. From the floor of Radio Row in Miami, Florida, ahead of Super Bowl 54. Here are your hosts, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Welcome back. Welcome back to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball coming to you from Radio Row, Miami Beach, for the 54th Super Bowl. This is our third time down here in the last four years, becoming an annual tradition for the Wharton Moneyball crowd. The whole crew is here this year. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, and this is Cade Massey here doing a special edition. And we're talking to a handful of folks as we've... As we're, as we're hanging out with, uh, with, uh, with the folks in the days leading up to the Super Bowl. In this segment, delighted to welcome onto the show... Back on the show, Justin Tuck. Justin Tuck, longtime NFLer, played college ball at Notre Dame, and then a career with the New York Giants that included, importantly, two Super Bowl rings. And then he's capped things off in recent years by coming to the Wharton School and picking up an NBA before going on to work for one of the great financial institutions in the world, Goldman Sachs. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again, guys. I appreciate it. Del- I guess I didn't do, do anything to upset you guys the last time, <laughs> so you invited me back. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You got to be careful how good you are, Justin, because we'll keep we'll keep on getting you back. Listen, man, you're you're um, you've been through this thing before a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about what these guys have in store for them. You know, these guys have been through a lot of big games. They played big games yeah. in college. They've been through big games, getting through the playoffs. They played a lot of pressure. But those who haven't been in the Super Bowl, I understand, are in for a unique experience. How was it for you the first time you walked down? What do you think these guys are facing? Well, I think. You know, it's it's you know Thursday now, so they're back into some sentiment of uh, a regular schedule that they had during the season. But like, the first week is annoying to be honest with you. I mean, you you just coming off one of the biggest highs in your football career of winning a, 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 a AFC or an NFC championship, and you basically have a week of all the logistics around the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's tickets, that's lodging for your family, that's packing, that's. Um, going through all the briefings and, and security and hotel management and all that. Um, so it's kind of annoying, really. It's everything other than football, to be honest with you, for the first week. And then you, you kind of settle in maybe on a Friday or Saturday that, 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 second, that first week and start back playing football a little bit, a little bit. But still, you know, in between that, it's still all the logistical stuff. And then when you fly down here probably on a Sunday, you got media and media and media and media. Oh, this damn media. And more media. Oh, the worst. Um, yeah, exactly, right? Uh, so you don't really get back in the swing of things to maybe Tuesday. Um, okay. 
And then that's when things start to kind of fall in place again for you to get back in a normal routine. And that's when you start enjoying the practices, the, the, the lead up, the, 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 the preparing for what is going to be your biggest game in your life. And it's not like anything else because, you know, even in the championship game where all of America is watching, no, in the Super Bowl, all of the world is watching yeah. you. Um, and you're one of two teams. It's, it's you or them. And it goes, you know, what you, what you do on that field that day, will live for all of eternity in mm-hmm. our sport. No one cares about being second. You know, I can tell you right now, the only reason I can tell you who was second in the Super Bowls we played is because it was the same team both times. But, <laughs> but no one really cares, right? No one cares about second. So you have that game to make everything count for the opportunity of a lifetime. And you never know if you're going to get back there or not. So it's a lot of pressure, but I think – the teams that handled that the best, they handled all the stuff that you don't want to talk about, you know, the logistical stuff, and did that the right way and didn't have to worry about people calling you for tickets on the day of the week or the week of the, uh, the game. Those are the teams that normally have a, a better session of practice and, and are, are somewhat more prepared for when the lights turn on on the stadium on, on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, Justin, this Super Bowl, in a lot of ways to me, reminds me of your Super Bowl against the Patriots in the following sense. Which, which one here? Well, the second one. People are saying, for example, this defensive line of San Francisco mm-hmm. better do damage or Patrick <laughs> Mahomes is going to shred them. Yeah. Well, the Patriots, I think it was the second Super Bowl. First. The first, sorry. It was 17-0, yeah. and 0, right? First yeah. Yeah, so if you guys hadn't done damage in that Super Bowl, I think everyone believes the Patriots were going to score 40-something points. So how much pressure right now is the defensive line of San Francisco feeling in this game? Well, I hope they're feeling none. Not because it, they're not the kingpin of who's going to make a decision on who wins this game or not. No, they are. But I hope they're not feeling that it's pressure. I hope they're feeling that as opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's how we looked at it. Because think about it. You know, the only, the, the only difference in this game versus ours from our perspective of how you ask the question is no one expected us to win. They expect 49 to have a great shot. But for us, we was playing against, you know, 18-0, record-setting offense. No one expected us to even have a shot. So we didn't even look at it as pressure. We looked at it as an opportunity. Uh, and I'm hoping that, that the 49ers and, and everybody in this game is, is looking at it the same way. I don't, I don't think you should add more pressure on yourself just because of the Super Bowl. What's, difference in this, what's different in this game? then you playing in your backyard. It's still the same rules. It's still the same everything other than just more people are watching you play it. So, you know, I think of that as an opportunity to showcase my talents to the world and not pressure to perform because I, you've performed, you know, you've played, what, 19, 20 games before this where you performed. There shouldn't be any difference there. But the 49ers D-line has to get out to McHolmes. If they don't, Considering all the talent that he has in that on that on that on that side of the ball, man, it's going to be very difficult to keep them under forty. You you talked about kind of you know the part of the kind of you know mystique and pressure that one might feel at the Super Bowl is that this is kind of a, often a once in a life once in a career opportunity for yeah. a lot of these players. Both these teams, to me, look like they're kind of built to compete for the next few years. Long haul. Yep. If if you would if you were a Particular man, who who do you think? Which of these two teams do you think kind of has the best opportunities to come back to this over the next few seasons? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. Um, I would probably say I like a. All right, we'll talk a little money here, and this is the reason. This will be the basis of my my answer. I I like the Forty ers because they've already played their quarterback, mm-hmm. so that, that that is kind of already out of their cap. Um, mm. And they already have the team that they have with that cap, and they'll be able to resign more people than 
after Kansas City will because Mahomes coming this offseason is probably going to sign the biggest deal in, in football history, which will take money off the table for them signing other pieces of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I was going to talk about it from that perspective, I would say the 49ers probably have a better chance of keeping that core the majority together, of the yeah. core together than, 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 than Kansas City would. How much would you be using? When I say analytics, let me say it in a broad sense. Sure. You as a defensive end are going to have to study the patterns of the other team. Yep. So how much would you be prepared for this game by saying the people you're likely to go against, you know, 40% of the time they do this, this yep. is the time. So how much do you think analytics play and how much did it play in your time with the Giants when you were preparing for other teams? Well, I mean, it played heavily, but we didn't call it analytics. We just call it studying film and making notes. But, I mean, like you said, I would know, all right, if um, on third down what – they just they just give you a hypothetical. If it's third down and six and they have the ball on the 30-yard line, our 30-yard line, um, and it's on the left hash and they got trips into the boundary and this and that and all these other factors, right? Well, as, a, as for me personally, I want to know all these things because now instead of me sitting there saying, oh, I got to play the down block, the, the base block, the, the reach block, and all these other blocks, then no, if, if I did my homework and I put the analyticals together to say, all right, because there's a boundary into the spread or boundary into the uh, spread into the boundary, Gronk is the head of that spread. What have I seen them do in that, in that formation? They don't run sweep away, so I don't need to worry about a reach block. I can take that off my plate. I don't have to play that. Um, you know, third and seven, 30-yard line, they're normally a passing team there, so I probably won't get a base block. I can take that off my plate. So it allowed me, knowing the analytical, uh, the analytics of the situation, it allowed me to kind of take other things off my plate and allowed me to play faster because I didn't have to worry about reading this and that. I could read maybe two things. It takes some uncertainty and options out of, you know, the yeah, things you have 100%. to worry about. Yeah. One of the things that analytics has taught me about football is that the quarterback is not only important, but it's the only position that if you take the quarterback and swap it with someone else going into a game, it actually makes a difference in your forecast. Now, it doesn't mean the other positions aren't important, but singularly, there's no one position or one player who actually makes a difference in the outcome that you would would forecast. Going back to your previous question. If if you swap me for some third-screen DN on our team, that wouldn't change the forecast at all? Uh, Well, that's what the data says. I'll let Cade follow up with that. Hmm. Good question. It would, actually. It wasn't you, by the way. I'll tell you what, that is kind of the (laughs) front... That Justin, that's where that the frontier of analytics is right now mm-hmm. in football. There's so many players, 22 guys on the field, it's hard to pull it all together. Sure. And we're not good at, okay, Justin Tuck's a Pro Bowl defensive lineman. Mm-hmm. His number is different than the average defensive lineman. Yeah. But what's true that Adi just said is that the, it's much more noticeable that gap is bigger yeah. when you trade out quarterback than you trade out any other individual on the field. No, it means I, we can actually measure it and estimate it and take into account. But let me get back to that. So let's just hold off to that as, as least plausibly true. Sure. When you describe the future in, in reaction to Shane's question being San Francisco and, and KC, who's got the longer-term future, you made a great point, and I, I didn't thought about it, and it's absolutely correct, but you implicitly put Garoppolo on the same proximate tier as Mahomes. Is nah, that true? I wouldn't Is necessarily Garoppolo a good, a really a, a franchise quarterback? But he's already got paid, though. As, as, that's right. As so for money-wise, you're, you're so, on top so of that's, it. But I, like, if, you, if you've taken both of those players – and at face value today, and neither one of them has gotten paid. And, and I'm saying to myself, we're going to pay Garoppolo. He's going to get paid. You're going to pay Mahomes. He's going to get paid. Do I think Mahomes, at this point in time, gets paid more than Garoppolo? Absolutely. Yeah. If that's answering yeah. your question. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I it mean, also, just, on, on, on the flip side, you're going to have to pay Mahomes that much more than Garoppolo, and that's going to be, exactly. you know, in a, in a cap think, sort of situation. And, and, and that's going to reduce people, your flexibility also. And think about all the people that Kansas City would have to try to lowball in some sense yeah. right. to, to bring him back to keep that quarterback. But do you think Garoppolo's good? Is, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we love, we love the answer because you got to consider the opportunity cost in these guys. Sure. This is a great Wharton Business School yeah. answer. It's like, yeah, I love, I love these teams, but here's a sophisticated way to think about it. These guys have already paid their quarterback. That's the big, single biggest chunk that comes out of the salary cap. I think it's a fantastic way of thinking about it. There's always the question of how good does a quarterback have to be to get him to the Super Bowl. Maybe you don't have to have Mahomes to get to the Super Bowl. Justin, we have to wind down. I want to ask you a question, though. Anytime we get to talk to someone who's – performed as well as you have over your career so you come in as a third round draft pick that's a you know that's great already but you don't necessarily expect 11 year career multiple pro bowls out of a third round what do you, how, to what do you 71 attribute? people made a mistake that's what happened <laughs> 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 we, 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 we can go on to all right so you were oh that's one way to answer you might have been yeah. misvalued coming out of was it more than being misvalued coming out of college or was it how you conducted yourself once you got into the league? I think it was both. I think, you know, my senior year in college, I, I blew my ACL out. My junior year in college, I blew my ACL out and came back from my senior year and didn't have the season I had. And people thought that, you know, because of that injury, I wasn't a player um, that I had been or I wasn't going to be the player that I had been. Um, luckily for me, they, they were mistaken in that and, and was able to kind of right the ship there and, and, and have a pretty good career. Um, but also, Given the parameter that I walked into, I walked into a Michael Strahan-led team, an Osin Yemen-led team. I was able to learn from them while kind of being frustrated with being on the sidelines, which continued to fuel me to work out in the, in, in the weight room and get my body right and make sure I'm doing the right thing. So when my time was called, I'll be ready to go. But, you know, I got, I, got a, I got the best of both worlds. I got the opportunity to rest my body, heal my knee correctly, learn from the, one of the greatest people who ever played the game, um, and when I got the opportunity to go, I got the opportunity to go. I was ready to go. That's and great. that kind of was the history made there. I think um, given the situation somewhere else, I might not have had that same fortune. And I do think we underemphasize sort of like the situation that a lot of these – like so a lot of the uncertainty about drafting versus the, the, your draft slot versus your actual career success is yep. the, the opportunity you walk into. I mean, Patrick Mahomes – we say he probably would have succeeded under any scheme or any team out there, but yeah. I mean, walking into the situation he did, it kind of optimized his success. No, no question. I no mean, question. I, I know you got to go, but I just give you a name. Aaron Rodgers, he was yeah. picking over 24th, and I guarantee there's 23 teams in that draft that wish they did something different there. That's right. So That's right. Listen, you're, we know you're working with Goldman Sachs, but we also know you're working with Volvo. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with Volvo. Yeah, very simple. Volvo, I mean, I was very blessed to, to, to play in a few Super Bowls, and one of those Super Bowls, I got a safety in it, so I guess when Volvo thought about, <laughs> yeah, when Volvo thought about pairing the safety that they're known from from an organization to foot, football, I, I became kind of high on their list for a spokesman. And basically, what we're doing is you can go to Volvo, um, blanket on the blanket on the website now, VolvoSafetySunday.com, and go and, and kind of make the car of your choice. Mine is the XC90 SUV for Volvo. But you That's the one I have, by the way. Oh, there you go. Good choice. <laughs> hey, so you can, you can go there and you can pick uh, every, every the models and, and the color and the rims and the interior and all that, and it will automatically register you in this sweepstakes. And if there's a safety on Super Bowl Sunday, Volvo is giving away a million dollars worth of cars from right. this pool. So right. root That's for great. a safety. Yeah. We will. Justin Tuck, hey, by the way, you're not wearing your – when do you wear your rings? Never. Never. 
I got ten fingers, and if I wore eight of my fingers, would be very upset with me. So <laughs> I, uh, I choose, and they're uncomfortable too. And plus, you know, well, I don't need I to be in the limelight. I can say again for all the Giants fans in the world, thank you for the two you won. It, it I that especially. But I have to ask you one last question. Did you receive something from the 1972 Dolphins? Did anybody, I'm sure you've gotten this question so before. Did I, somebody from the 72 Dolphins contact you when you guys won that no, game? No, and I'm telling, I'm telling every radio show I've been on this morning, I've been like, I don't understand why I have to pay for a meal in Miami. I don't yeah. That's true. <laughs> all That's you, true. All you 72 Dolphins, I, you know, listen, I mean. That's fair. I don't understand it. They should take I, you around on a chariot. <laughs> that is fair. We should have should had a parade in Miami. I don't get yeah. it, man. They, they're, they're slacking. <laughs> Well, maybe you'll find one. Justin, enjoy your weekend. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, guys, as always. Absolutely. That was Justin Tuck, longtime defensive lineman here in the NFL. Two Pro Bowls and two Super Bowl rings with the New York Giants. Wharton alum, have to say, he's a Wharton alum. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you very much. Fellas, we're going to keep on rolling here just a little bit. Tell um, any, anything, anything about those Giants Super Bowls that stand out to you, Eric? Anything you think help understand what might happen this season from your watching the Giants? And for that matter, our Super Bowl, you know, expert in resident, our Patriot fan, Shane Jensen. Well, I, what sticks out to me again is I think San Francisco's chance in this Super Bowl is what everyone has said. If they can get, if they can successfully rush four men, leave seven people in the secondary, that's what it's going to take to cover the five really good receivers for Kansas City. If they have to rush six. Well, I don't like one-on-one coverage against any of the five receivers. Wait, is there any team in the NFL you'd rather be stuck with that proposition? If, you, if, you're trying to, if you're trying to do it with four, I mean, San Francisco's a good team. Yeah, this it's, current team. I mean, maybe those 2007 Giants I'd rather take over right. history. But, like, this current San Francisco team is the most but it's, well-suited. This is what makes this but the it's most— both, It's both sides of the football. Yeah. They're a big running team as well. So, as we talked about, not only can they potentially, you know, stop the other team— but they can run the football. And so I think from both sides, that's a good thing. So uh, that has been a conversation with Justin Tuck, longtime New York Giants lineman and Wharton alum. We're delighted to welcome Bruce Gradkowski, longtime NFL quarterback, had careers with the Bucks and Steelers. Eric Bradlaugh, always happy to have the Buccaneer, <laughs> a Buccaneer in the house. Played college ball at Toledo. Now he does some work with Pro Football Focus. I understand he's in there once a week or so to keep all those guys on the straight and narrow with his expertise. Brad, Bruce, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good. Uh, appreciate you having me. Glad, glad, glad to have you. Thanks for making time. I know you're busy this time of year. Tell us how you're feeling about this game. You are a quarterback yourself. You're an analyst now. This is a showdown of a couple of really interesting quarterbacks. How have you been thinking about what we're going to see on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in for a great matchup. I, you know, of course, Patrick Mahomes is the best player on the field. Uh, so that's interesting in itself and seeing what he has done through these playoffs. But you have to look at the Niners. I mean, I think they're more of the complete team. Uh, a lot of people are giving Jimmy G a lot of, you know, a negative vibe, but I mean, he's done a good job all season. I mean, I think people don't give him credit for the big games they have won this year and, and what he's what he can do. So I think we're just in a treat for the Mahomes and the defense for the Niners matchup. That's going to be interesting because the Niners have been go, so good defensively getting pressure on the quarterback just by getting uh, using their front four. Well, so tell you, I love you stepping in to defend Jimmy G straight away as an analyst and as a quarterback. Tell us how you think of his game. Where do you see his real strengths and where do you see weaknesses? So, you know, as outside the numbers, I, I think Jimmy G has what it takes. Like, he has that it factor. You, you can't measure it on paper and whatnot, but 
You know, I just know that the moments don't get too big for him. Now, when I do grade him at times, so this whole season, I did know that, look, he's going to have a turnover-worthy play, whether it's a sack fumble, whether it's an interception. Those tend to come up when he's playing, uh, but he overcomes them. And especially having the good team around him, he overcomes those. He just can't have a game where it's multiple turnovers, three, four turnovers. That's hard to overcome, especially when you're playing a team like Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. So uh, I think Jimmy G has done a fantastic job. And, And one of the stats that actually, you know, is remarkable this season is just going off the regular season, comparing Mahomes to Jimmy G. Jimmy G actually has graded better when trailing than Patrick Mahomes. Jimmy really? G's uh, passer rating is 115. Mahomes is uh, 95. So, and Jimmy G has more yards per attempt uh, than Mahomes when trailing. So, you know, it's, people could say whatever they want about the postseason, but it's like, look, he hasn't had to do much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, and on the other flip side, we've seen Mahomes, 48 dropbacks when trailing just in the postseason. Mm-hmm. So Mahomes had to do a lot to get the Chiefs to where they're at today. So we, the casual fan has a hard time parsing player from scheme, from coach. Maybe it's just a little thought exercise to help us understand those differences. What kind of system would Reed be running right now if Jimmy G was his quarterback? What kind of system would Shanahan be running right now if Mahomes was his quarterback? You know, I I don't know if those guys would change too much from what they're doing. There's going to always be little nuances as far as, you know, what one quarterback's more comfortable with. You know, even when I was backing up Big Ben or Andy Dalton in Cincinnati, um, you know, if it was my turn to start, it's the same game plan, but I'm saying, nah, I don't really like that third down and three call. I like this one. And I don't like that, you know, red zone call. I like this one. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are the differences. So what Mahomes and, and Jimmy G are comfortable with and like uh, just would tr- change a little bit. But I think as schematics, you know, Andy Reid has a system. You know, Kyle Shanahan has his. There would be little nuances. I think Andy Reid has changed a lot uh, for what Mahomes is good at. And, you know, and that's why you see what, a lot what's of an RPOs. Example? Yeah, tell us, like, tell us about RPOs. So like the RPOs, like the run pass option. So. Andy Reid does a really good job with shifts and motions. Both teams do, the Niners and the Chiefs, but the shifts and the motions. And now an RPO is run-pass option. So Mahomes has the opportunity to either hand the football off or throw it, all based on what a defender does. So at the snap of the football, Mahomes catches the snap. Now his eyes goes to his key target. Is it the linebacker? Is it the safety? Is it, you know, depend on what linebacker. He's reading that guy. If the guy flows with the run, he pulls the ball out of the running back's stomach and throws it to the receiver. And Mahomes, what, what is it about Mahomes that makes him especially good in that situation? Is it mostly like a mobility thing, or is it more, more like, I guess... Uh, mental process? Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it more mental, physical? That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, right. I think just his arm talent, like how he could just flick it and sling it, like it doesn't really matter. And, you know, uh, being a mental processor, I mean, that's a good point because it's not easy to run RPOs because as a quarterback, you're not making the decision until the very last second after you see someone do something. And a lot of times approaching the line of scrimmage as a quarterback, you want to kind of know, okay, based on this coverage, it seems I'm going to probably work this receiver. Um, And if things don't work out, then I come to this, this, and this receiver. You know, but that's after the snap and you're into your drop and you can read it as you're dropping back. Bruce, tell us about it. You're only a couple of years out of the league, but it does seem like the, the offense has evolved so much. What is it like for a guy who didn't play in an RPO system when you think about what would it be like as you as a former quarterback? 
to have to make those RPO calls. Would you be excited about that prospect, or would you be a little daunted by it? No, I'd be excited. I mean, I'd be excited. The, the most RPOs we ran, and it wasn't really an RPO as much. It was just, you know, those zone reads, right, at Toledo when yeah. I'm reading the defensive end. If the defensive yeah. end closes down with the run, I pull the ball and I keep it for 10, 15 yards. And, uh, but now that's where they incorporated you're reading that defensive end. If he goes with the run, you pull it, but now you also have a slant you could throw yeah. to. If the slant's not there, now you can run, or now you could throw your flat route. So that's how it's it kind of evolved. So is it, I mean, t- it, when you describe that to us, you think about how fast that's happening and the quality of athlete, you're opposite. It right. sounds borderline impossible. When you're actually, you get a lot of reps on it, and you're a better athlete. Is it become second nature? Is it quite intuitive to, to make these even the read the zone? Right. Like, do these RPOs eventually just become almost like muscle memory or something like yeah, that? Yeah, you have. To, I mean, you have to practice a lot, but you have to be just decisive with it. Yeah. I mean, the, the most important thing when you're doing RPOs and you're reading, uh, you know, defenders, you have to play decisive because. If you hesitate at all or now you're talking about a fumble, you know, you have it halfway in the running back's belly, but yet you let the ball go and he doesn't know. You you have to be confident and decisive of when you execute these plays. And I think you brought up a good point about, you know, practicing these. Like for me, my footwork was so important that I didn't want to have to think about what my footwork was on a certain play. It just had to be natural. So you think about everything that goes through quarterback's mind from the minute they get the play call in, they get in the huddle, enunciate the play, the shift, the motions, the snap count, you break the huddle, you get to the line, see what the defense is in, you know, our protecting scheme, where's the offensive line going to, how am I protecting my hot, do I have to throw a sight? You know, the defense moves. Now i got to see the leverage of the linebacker safety. Now where's my read start? Now what's my footwork? And then the ball snapped, and then how much has that changed? So the last thing, you want that to become, you know, as natural as possible so you can play fast. How much do you think, um, you even mentioned that Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, if you throw the ball enough, he'll make maybe a bad play. Well, I'm a fan of a team that unfortunately has the worst instance of this in the (laughs) NFL, which is Jameis Winston. What happens to a coach and a play-calling scheme when you have a quarterback that, in, in Jameis's case, has almost as many interceptions as touchdowns? Let's imagine in the game, first couple series, Jimmy Garoppolo throws a pick. What do you think yeah. happens? Like, matter of fact, people have tr- – I don't think it's causal, but I think Jimmy Garoppolo's only thrown 14 times since he threw the really bad interception two playoff games ago. Yeah, I mean, I just think <laughs> – you know, it depends because when you talk about Jameis Winston, you know, you're spotting that other team points. You know, when he's throwing a pick six to open up games, you're basically saying, here, we just spotted you seven points. And now we have to overcome that deficit. Um, and, and that's tough, you know. So Jameis, to me, um, he has a big play potential, right? And then, you know, he has those interceptions that you want to just go crazy about. But are you going to find something better out there? You might find someone that's more cautious with the football, but maybe not someone that could throw the ball like he can or have those big play potentials downfield. So give them maybe another year in Bruce Arians' system and see how they work together. See how and you can think make that's what's going right. to happen. And I guess that that begs the question: Are there kind? Of, could you? Could one design a scheme that kind of takes advantage, essentially, of his sort of his high risk, high return kind of play style? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think Bruce Arians does a good job of that. Um, and look, and not all his interceptions um, are his fault. You know, I that? think there's 25 of them. I've seen every one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just 25 of the 30. Yeah, just that's it. So, 
We're talking to Bruce Gradkowski. Bruce, 11-year NFL quarterback coming out of Toledo, went on to play for the Bucks, Steelers, and Bengals, now working with Pro Football Focus. Talking about coaches and quarterbacks, you played for John Gruden back in Tampa Bay, right? I've heard yeah. you say something along the lines of, Gruden didn't marry quarterbacks, he dated them? So Yeah, that, that was Jeff Garcia. Garcia said that um, because it's funny. Like, Gruden's always looking to, you know, find the next, uh, the hot flavor of the month. And mm. but, but Gruden's such a good teacher. I learned so much from him um, and his offensive schemes. I mean, very a lot of verbiage, but, you know, it helped me get better. I mean, I was always kind of concerned getting in the huddle as a rookie and not fumbling over my words because I was with Mike Allstott, Joey Galloway. Um, and there was one time I called a play wrong in training camp. Uh, it was green right west, 93-week cannon with 96-power king. And I said 92-week cannon with 96-power king. And I break the huddle, and I'm correcting myself at the line of scrimmage to the offensive line. And I look back to our running to, to Mike Allstott, and I'm like, hey, it's 93-week, not 92. And he grabs my face mask. He's like, which one is he? Get it effing right. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, shoot, I, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> So, Bruce, you've decided to do some work with Pro Football Focus. We're big fans of those guys. You know, they broke into the business charting plays and and scouting players, and now they've paired it with some very high-profile coverage in the media. They've also paired it with some high-end data science. What is your role with the organization, and why did you choose to do that? Yeah, so I I help oversee the quarterback rating. So um, at the end of the day, you know, I've been around a lot where I've seen a lot of concepts and quarterback play where – you know, just like we're talking about interceptions, like we make sure we're as accurate as we can be. You know, was it a miscommunication on that interception or was it on the quarterback or was it on the receiver? And um, and different things like that. But playing the position helps me uh, be able to see those things and helps the grading process. I think I was very impressed with how PFF is set up because it's like a bunch of coaches, a bunch of gym rats just studying film, breaking down film, grading every player game snap that there is um it's pretty cool from college to the nfl and it, there's just so much data and it you know and the data is not fake i mean when you see the grades it's guys that actually watch the film yeah. and grade it yeah. it's not like you yeah. watch a few snaps no this is a correlation of their whole you know season and every throw and you know i'd grade every throw you know on sunday monday um in the nfl so you're watching a lot of throws you're seeing a lot of concepts we're talking to Bruce Gradkowski, Bruce, 11-year NFL quarterback, now working with Pro Football Focus. We are now through two segments. We've got two segments to go. Come back and join us after the break. And now we return to a business radio special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. From the floor of Radio Row in Miami, Florida, ahead of Super Bowl 54. Here are your hosts, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Welcome back. Welcome back to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball. Coming to you from Miami Beach. We're on Radio Row here at the Convention Center for the Super Bowl, the 54 Super Bowl. Kansas City and San Francisco going to play on Sunday. We're down here a few days ahead of time to talk to folks involved in the league. We're talking to Bruce Gradkowski. Bruce, 11-year NFL quarterback coming out of Toledo, went on to play for the Bucks, Steelers, and Bengals. Now 
working with Pro Football Focus. What does it look like for you to be helping Pro Football Focus? Like specifically, are you guys like you bring in some borderline plays and talk it through or you work through some concepts? What does your contribution look like? Yeah, so well, um, so on a weekly basis during the season, no, I was I was watching every game, every pass. Okay. So what I would do is I'd watch every quarterback, every game, every pass? Yeah, so on Sunday I'd watch the games like, you know, on my couch, whatever. And then about like seven thirty at night or so, whenever the film would start rolling in. I'd get the coaches cut up, and then I would sit down and go over every pass, the coaches' mm-hmm. version, so I could see the whole field. So I'd do that from, like, 7.30 till 3 in the morning, get up, and then do, it, do more from 8 to, like, 2, wow. and try to get through all the passes. Wow. Um, so, so I'm great in each and every pass. Now, when there's passes that come up that I'm kind of like, ah, oh, man, I wonder what I'd give this. I might give this to this or this. Then I'd probably send it to a group of all of us, and say, hey, guys, what do you okay. think of this one? And so we're talking amongst each other a lot mm-hmm. and, and helping each other out. So it's more a collaboration of how it gets done. Do you, do you, I, I, sorry to interrupt, but I, I just want to ask, do you, do you like San Francisco? San Francisco's offensive strategy, especially because you can get like an hour, extra hour of sleep on yeah, Sunday exactly. night. <laughs> no, exactly. I, you know, uh, that's why when Jimmy G only threw the ball eight times <laughs> the other uh, playoff game, I was like, this is going to be nice. I'm not, <laughs> not going to have to watch a lot of passes. Can you ask, tell us what you look for in a successful pass? I mean, let's take an example. A quarterback makes a great throw, but the cornerback just makes an even better play. Could a pick six ever be a great pass by the quarterback? Or the quarterback had to have made a mistake. Forget a tipped ball for a second, right. which randomness happens. He should have known that the, quarter, the cornerback was taking a certain angle, could accelerate to the ball. Can a really bad play ever be graded well for the quarterback? Um, well, if you take it, because initially, yeah, I was thinking uh, the tip pass, right? You know, that, well, that's not going to, that's probably going to be a zero, a wash, nothing's going to happen. Um, but there, there's probably times that, yes, it's an unbelievable play by the defender. You know, there's some balls that you throw that's a 50 50 ball um, that probably won't get downgraded by the quarterback that got intercepted or whatnot. So mm-hmm. there is some of those cases. I would think, though, most of the time when, when the ball is getting intercepted, it's probably negatively graded if it's not impacted any way by a, a, a poor route, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a tip ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, so a poor route can also play into those pick sixes. You know, mm-hmm. I know Jameis Winston had one. I think it was the left side of the field or the right side. He was throwing to his running back on a hitch route, and the, the dude went a little too deep. And it's like, well, the running back, should, he ran a poor mm-hmm. route. That's mm-hmm. why the cornerback was able to right, undercut kind of it. Undercut it, yep. Mm-hmm. Bruce, you, you look at all the quarterbacks in the NFL, the casual fan doesn't do that. Who do you think's out there that we might not yet appreciate, or who might you forecast to be on the come, and we're going to be talking more about in the next couple of years? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, these two in the Super Bowl I really like, and I think they have a long – luxurious career ahead of them um other guys i mean matthew stafford started out strong this year you know and, and he was throwing some amazing throws uh just unfortunate he got hurt right. can you tell us about our guy in philly how do you see carson wentz oh, yeah. there's a lot of debate a lot of people mm-hmm. haven't been that happy with wentz how, yeah. how do you how have you graded his throws this so, year so carson wentz he started off the season really well because he they led the league in like drop passes right yeah. so I mean, for him, he still had a high grade for us because all those drop passes, they count as a positive grade for Wentz. It wasn't his fault that the receiver just plainly dropped the football. And I think Wentz is the type of dude that you love guys that can extend plays, you know, make plays when they need to, and the moment's never too big, and, th- and that's Wentz, you know. And that's why when they played the Cowboys at the end of the year, 
my money was on Wentz because I just kind of knew he'll find a way. Now, how do you kind of continue to bottle that up and execute the offense that's there? I mean, um, you know, they have some changes this year offensively, coaching staff-wise, so see how they could continue to put the pieces around them. And, and they dealt with a lot of injuries as well, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Wentz in general. Is a sack a quarterback stat? So a sack could be on a QB as well. That's something we, we worked on more this year is um, because protection-wise, you know, I know Baker Mayfield took one this year. It's, you know, a, a five-man protection, right? It's an empty backfield set. So the, the offensive linemen, there's five offensive linemen, so the five offensive linemen have the four-down defensive linemen and probably either the Mike linebacker or the Will linebacker, whoever they declare they're going to. Um, and then there was one where Baker Mayfield took a sack, and yes, it was obvious that, hey, this should be on the quarterback. He understands where the line's protecting him and going to, that he either has to change the protection to go to take away his hot or if those two guys blitz, he should know that he has to get rid of the football, either get rid of that ball quick or throw your sight or hot, hot uh, adjustment. So, Bruce, I'm always interested in this. If Let's say it's halftime of the Super Bowl this Sunday, and obviously you want to know the score. What other statistics or analytics would you be looking at if I would show you the box score that would say, you know what, let's even imagine the score is tied but it's not telling the whole story. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for to say Kansas City seems to be controlling this game or San Francisco's controlling this game? Well, sometimes I look at, you know, I always look at how teams are playing on third down. You know, third down and in the red zone. Like, you'll see teams sputter a little bit where they'll be moving the ball up and down the field, and you're like, man, they they should be killing this team, Uh, but they're kicking field goals. You know, so those are, like, apparent to me sometimes that when you're going in for halftime adjustments, it's like, man, we we have to be better in the red zone. We're getting our opportunities. Or you recognize matchups. Like, hey, anytime we get in this formation, we have this linebacker going with the running back. Let's take advantage of that, and let's start doing this package of plays that we have. So... It's always adjustments that you try to, and Belichick's one of the best at that, uh, making those halftime adjustments. Mm-hmm. So we need, we're going to have to let you go, but just before you go, what, what would you say to the average fan that would make them be a more sophisticated consumer of football, especially on the quarterback, since it's such an important yeah. position, and you're an expert here. How can we watch football in a more sophisticated way to really understand what the quarterback is or isn't doing? That's a good question. I mean, and how to kind of explain it to to the, you know, average fan, you know, because we all love football and love watching the game. And honestly, sometimes I say, you know, trust yourself. You know, if if you see a bad play and a bad pass, you know, sometimes it is, you know, on the quarterback or it is what you see. But don't forget that you could be thinking – Huh, I wonder if the receiver ran the wrong route right there. I wonder if there's a miscommunication. I wonder if, you know, the, the, the pass protection up front inhibited the reason why Carson Wentz missed that throw because, you know, he had to kind of rush the throw. He couldn't throw on time because the pressure was right in his face, so he had to drift back as he was throwing it so he couldn't follow through on his throw or he didn't have enough time to let the routes develop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Any final words on the game this Sunday? What, what will you be especially paying attention to? Yeah, I'm just excited. to. I mean, you have two offensive geniuses and Andy Reid and, and Kyle Shanahan. They each have an extra week to prepare for this game. So just kind of like I, I'm always like I'll watch their games and grade them, but I'll save the plays that I like the new schemes and designs. Mm-hmm. So Andy Reid and Kyle Shanahan always have something I'm like, oh, I like that play. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking forward to that. But then in the game itself, I just think 
it's going to be exciting. I'm looking for the matchup with Mahomes. If they could contain him a little bit and not mm-hmm. let him get outside the pocket, mm-hmm. and if they could continue to get pressure on the quarterback, and then Jimmy G. Jimmy G just playing a solid game. I think he will, and I think they'll really kind of get a lot of get, get their money's worth with play action pass downfield. Terrific. Bruce Gregkowski, delighted to have you. Thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Bruce Gregkowski, longtime NFL quarterback, careers with the Bucks, Steelers, and Bengals, coming out of playing college ball at Toledo, now working with Pro Football Focus, a true quarterback expert. Bruce Gregkowski, thank you. That has been a third segment here on a special edition of Wharton Moneyball. We have a fourth to go. Come back and join us after the break. American Top 40. We're heading for a brand new number one song. Casey Kasem counts the hits that shined in the 70s. It's time for this hour's long distance dedication. Our letter is postmarked Billings, Montana. Hear the actual 40 song countdown that aired during this week of the Super 70s. Keep your feet in the ground and keep reaching for the stars. American Top 40. Saturdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific with replays throughout the weekend on 70s on 7. 7. Wharton Moneyball. You're going to be excellent in one sport. you got to go golf. You can play it for decades. That's a There's a you senior can play tour. For, you can play it for There's 40. a tour for the people who aren't good at it anymore. Right. You can play for 45 years. Somebody else carries your equipment. Right. You're out in the sunshine. Yeah. If it rains, you get to go inside. I mean, what? Is there a concern about concussions in golf? No. I was Is there a concern about anything? No. Wharton Moneyball. Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on Business Radio. The Sirius XM News Channels. Breaking news from the biggest names in the business. Fox News. I'm Shepard Smith. Hey, it's Sean Hannity. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. MSNBC. Welcome to Morning Joe. I'm Chris Matthews. I'm Rachel Maddow. CNN. Hey, it's Chris Cuomo. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Wolf Blitzer. You're in the Situation Room. News from around the world. World news from the BBC. And hear the latest headlines updated every 15 minutes. Fox News headlines 24-7. Sirius XM News. Channels 114 to 120. And now back to a business radio special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. From the floor of Radio Row in Miami, Florida, ahead of Super Bowl 54. Here are your hosts, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Welcome back. Welcome back to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball. Coming to you from Miami Beach. We're on Radio Row here at the Convention Center for the Super Bowl, the 54th Super Bowl. Kansas City and San Francisco going to play on Sunday. We're down here a few days ahead of time to talk to folks involved in the league. This segment, we have Scott Pioli joining us. Scott, of course, longtime NFL executive, 27 years in the NFL, three-time Super Bowl champ. I'm not that the, old, really. <laughs> you just spent your better part of your life with championship teams. That's a long run with the Patriots and with the Chiefs, most recently with the Atlanta Falcons, now an analyst with CBS Sports. Scott, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank um, you. How, how is it to be a, a year out of the game? And, you, you know, you probably get a little perspective, but you you were with three different fran- – well, five different yeah, franchises. Different, going back yeah. to Browns and the Ravens. But, you know, you've got some experience with the Super Bowl thing. What's it like yeah. to be back this year without a, with not being with the team but down here in the middle of it? Uh, this year is weird, you know, because I, I would come down every year. I have a rule, though. I – I come down when I was an executive. You'd have to come down with the team, with the ownership, and you have like these weird roles. You have to do radio row and shake hands, kiss babies. And uh, but this is my first time doing it as a member of the media, so to mm-hmm. speak. So it's it, it, it is a little bit different. Um, 
I'll tell you this, though. The truth is it sucks every time you're down here and you're not a participant. Right. You know, I was, I was blessed to be a part of uh, five teams that went to this game, lost twice, won three times. Incredible. Um, so it, it's it's different. But, uh, you know, this is the path I've chosen for right now. So I keep mm-hmm. telling people I'm in a little bit of a sabbatical. You know, mm-hmm. I, I resigned in um, in May, mm-hmm. three weeks after the draft, mm-hmm. from the Falcons. So, yeah, I'm on a sabbatical, right? Isn't that what yeah. academic no, no, I, I like it. the word sabbatical <laughs> is so <laughs> much more. One of the best parts of our gig, so I salute you. This is what we look forward to. Yeah. I'm telling you what. So, Scott, let me ask you. One of the things we talked about in our first segment was how much variability there is in the game of football. Like, you know, yeah. the standard error of scores is like 12 and a half points. Even when you were the favorite in a number of the Super Bowls you played in, as a general manager and as executive, did you think about, you know, this could go the other way? I don't mean think negatively. I just mean there's just random stuff that happens in games. And, it, you know, we could be a seven-point favorite, but we could end up losing this game by ten. Yeah, I, I never looked at what the odds were uh, it, because the truth is, and not being negative like you say, but I never went into a game believing we believing that we were going to win. I thought we could win, right? But I didn't believe, based on the probability of our roster, how good we were, how talented we were, even in that 18-1 season when we were on a roll, you know, during the 16-0 regular season, every week. Um, again, I believed we would win, but I also knew that we had to do so many things right because there's so much that can happen in the game. There are so many variables in the game, whether it's the weather, the conditions, the uh, you, the players. You know, you've got on... On each side of the ball is these 11 interdependent relationships that have to work together perfectly. If one relationship in that one play doesn't happen or, or doesn't work, the things that can happen as a result or a byproduct of that can really screw things up. So um, it, as positive as I was, I was never that um, – I always felt like something was chasing. Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel like the mer- narrative, uh, the media we, we've created after that 2007 Patriots team is that that, that thing was just inevitable. You know, they were unstoppable, and the yeah. Giants had this miracle. If you actually, I mean, you you lived through that season. I did as a fan. I mean, there was a <laughs> lot of games that they could have lost in there. I mean, it was it was. You know, there were games was, where we blew the miraculous part in. was that they got to the postseason. Eighteen and zero, sixteen and zero is unbelievably rare. I mean, yeah, and not because dominance is that rare. I think the, a team that good is should happen every now and then, but actually winning all those yeah, games is that's extremely right. unlikely. Right. So I heard someone say the other day, you know, the thing about football that's beautiful about the Super Bowl and this one game championship where it's different. You got to win, you know, four out of seven in baseball. You know, you. It's not always the case necessarily where the best team wins right. on that particular day. You, you, yeah. The team that plays best that day will win, but it's not necessarily the best team going forward. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Scott, what, what are your thoughts on how, how to construct the best chance at getting those super? We know the t- best team's not always going to win, but the best you can do is build an organization that gets close and then chance breaks your way. You've been with three different franchises, three great franchises. Mm-hmm. What have you learned over your career about the key elements for giving yourself the best chance at the Super Bowl? Well, I think it, it, there's a, there, this, this, this could be a two-hour-long podcast on I that know, question alone. It's, but, so I, I won't wear you out, but I think some of the key elements are you know, identifying the right head coach. And whoever the head coach is, is serving that head coach. And, you know, although I was a general manager and a senior vice president, player person, whatever that title was, you know, when Bill and I were together, you know, I had a lot of the duties of general manager, but neither one of us had the title. Bill was, you know, the final say in a lot of things. But regardless of what that construct is, right, what that model looks like, whether it's the GM is up here and the head coach is just behind him or if it's reversed, the head coach has final decision. 
is building an organization where the head coach is certainly seen, perceived, and is the leader. Because the job of the general manager is to manage a lot of things, but primarily find players for the head coach. Mm -hmm. And when you're finding players, you have to find players that match the personality of the head coach, that can be motivated by the head coach's style. Because truthfully, as a general manager on Sundays, the players don't care who the general manager is. They really don't. They've got to be motivated and play and perform. So I think, you know, there's the head coach, there's the the ownership and Mm -hmm. how they allow you to do things or don't allow you to do things, how much respect they treat you with. I mean, I'll say this during... You know, the, the wonderful run we had in New England that Bill and I had in that, our time together, the crafts were phenomenal, mm-hmm. incredible, because they knew and trusted us. They didn't always agree with us, and they would let us know, but they never let us know in a passive-aggressive way mm-hmm. or in a, in a way where we felt like we were uncertain about the decisions they made. They trusted what we were good at and what we weren't. You know, and if they didn't think we were, they, they would voice their opinion, but ultimately let us do what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. So, Scott, let me ask you an analytics-related evaluation question. Was yeah. there ever a player, because people, at least the lore of, that, of Bill Belichick and the Patriots, is that they would take potentially a player lower-graded but that fit their system more. And so can you tell us how you thought about what I'll call pure talent versus this player fits our system? Well, it was fitting the system as, you know, philosophically, offensively, or defensively, talking about the scheme system, right? But they also needed to fit the system that Bill ran. You know, Bill, in certain ways, people think that Bill's very complicated or complex. Um, Again, I was blessed to know Bill back when I was in college. We worked together for 17 years. Um, Bill, in certain ways, he can make complicated game plans and do really cool things in the field, but his general principles aren't very difficult. He had three rules. Be on time, pay attention, work hard. Now, those seem like very simple things, but when you're dealing with players that are entitled, have had lives of entitlement that are different, that kind of do things on their own, they have to come into that system and fall in line. Bill didn't care how many earrings, how many tattoos, how long your hair was. He didn't care about it. That is, has nothing to do with discipline. Discipline is being on time, paying attention, working hard, being accountable to the family. And, and what we did in that case was we brought in players that maybe... And again, what is talent? Does that mean that they had good height, weight, speed, or they ran a good shuttle, or they? How did to? I like. It. I'm getting excited about this. You know, <laughs> yeah. no, we've they, had they, debates were... about the combine because I'm a player person that watches every minute of the combine, and they've been saying, "Why am I wasting my time watching this stuff?" When you it's know, not maybe... a waste of time, but it's also it. it, it, it just like anything, it. You know, we we have this habit as, as people to think that something is paramount or something, yeah. or is That's right. or it sucks, right, or it doesn't yeah. matter, but. Most things are right here in the middle, and at different moments, you have to make decisions. Now, there is great value in the combine. The the height, weight, speed, some of those things matter. There are other things that matter just as much that you don't measure, that isn't empirical data. And this is is something we run into a lot in the annex world. I I think if you can can kind of measure something, like if something's measured precisely, like, you know, the speed in like a 40-yard dash or something like that, we we put extra weight, more weight than we should on that precise measure just because it looks precise to us. So this is a great example. (laughs) So remember Tabucky Jones. So Tabucky Jones, remember he was one of the first legit 4-3 guys, and he could fly, straight-line guy. But Tabucky Jones, as a defensive bat, when he was, was making actives that were uh, motions that were proactive motions, where he got the ball in an interception and had to run or had to chase someone down in a line, perfect. But when Tabucky had to see, process, and because he was so high-hipped, his body yeah. type 
actually impacted his reactionary speed. So there's speed and there's reactionary speed. How quickly can you see, process, react, change direction, and then get in the right, you know, that's when geometry comes in, the shortest distance, you know, between two points. is How can they also assess what their speed is versus what their opponent's speed is and make sure that they take the right angle? You know, I I really want to have this analytics conversation a little bit more because, you know, I did this really cool segment with CBS Sports a couple of weeks ago and we talked about the importance of analytics and, and, and people that bring value in that way. And what happens in this thing, you've got these football people who have um, enormous talent in their field and big egos, and you've got analytics people who have enormous talent in their fields and big egos, and we get <laughs> in the same room and everyone's trying to play this game of who knows more, who's better, and we end up poking one another in the eye rather than just collaborating mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and, and doing this real thing where we can help one another and it's 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 fascinating thing. I, I think there hasn't been a team, and and people in football want to overstate their value and importance, and people in analytics want to you know overstate their importance and value, where there can be this coolly cool collaborative thing that can happen to make a team better. I'm but, sorry to ramble. I, I no, it's, no, it's, no, it's, it's something Fantastic. that it's it's something it's, comes we, up we, a lot in our show. We really yeah. actually we we focus on this a lot because. It's hard to figure out, you know, how it's going to actually play out in, in the in the game. The analytics people, like us, we're we feel like it's we're talking to people who don't don't trust us, don't agree with us, and so therefore you have to sort of step it up and, and kind of force it to happen. I wonder what you you brought up the head coach before. What is the role? How does a head coach say, you know, you guys have to listen to each other? So. I found in my analytics careers, whenever I get to a player or an entra- entrenched sort of relationship, they just they just shut down. They don't they don't want to hear. And the so, head coach does. So, or no, no, not the, the, the lower level people. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what is the role of the head coach in kind of saying this is all going to happen, and where would say Bel- let Belichick? Me, let, me and slightly, all that. let me slightly yeah. generalize that to yeah. include the possibility of how the analyst conducts himself or herself. So there's two questions here. How, because you've had a bird's eye view on this, and you've been trying to make this work. You've seen it work. You've seen it not work. How can Either the organization through the head coach help facilitate that process where the analyst is working with the personnel guys and how, and this is important for our community, what have you seen in an analyst, how they conduct himself or herself that is uh, more effective or less effective? So so the, the answer about the head coach is, well, a lot of times the head coach doesn't believe in it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, well, we so good yeah. luck with that, right? Because that's, right. that's not going to happen. But again, a lot of it, it, it's life, right? It comes down to the presentation. And if you walk in with your that's hat right. in your hand in humility, right, um, understanding it's it's there's so much generally speaking testosterone in those rooms mm-hmm. right and 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 uh, you know i know that women can be in football i mean i've been a big part of gay so uh, when i say it's it gets really complicated when you've got egos and you've got tradition yep <laughs> and yep. and history yep. um to me the there has to come this moment where people just lay down their arms and they're willing to be respectful because what happens in a lot of those rooms, because football is such a combative sport, it is a physically combative who is bigger, who's going to outlast. It's an ego thing. And when, when, when the challenge comes into the room where it's intellectual challenge, you have to remember this also football people for their entire lives have been told how smart they aren't. Mm -hmm. Right. They're Mm not. Oh, a football guy. Right. We know that. Oh, and a lot of people, and, and I know this from personal experience, there's people that walk into that room and give me that look, or you get in a conversation and you're spoken to in a condescending, yeah, in, and intellectually that kind of condescending. is really never constructive, right? It, it, right, it's not. However, on the flip side is you've walked into some of those rooms and some of the football people, like, 
you know that what was that line from um, from Mel Kiper? Oh. No, no, years ago. Oh, you've probably never even worn a jock strap, right? Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, right. Yeah. So there's that there's that whole both side bullying thing that goes on and there's alphas in the rooms and it doesn't matter and when I say alpha it doesn't matter if you're male or female there's alpha personalities in that room rather than there being collaborative personalities The part I can really room. identify with is you know I spent five years working with the Eagles and I worked for a president an owner Jeffrey Lurie mm -hmm. a president of a team Joe Banner and a general manager at the time Howie Roseman who all bought into analytics I mean I was hired directly by them Right Andy Reid was the head coach. Right. And let me tell you, he wasn't all bought in. And so I felt my job wasn't to present him really clever, important stuff, was to talk to him about how analytics could support what he's trying to accomplish. It was purely, I felt I was a salesperson. Whenever Andy right. came to our meetings, my job was to sell to him. And it wasn't because, and the bosses couldn't just tell him what to do. It wasn't going to work that way. And to me, the importance of what analytics can do is when you've got football people that want to look at the tape and need to look at the tape, because at the end of the day, it's not the numbers and the reality of predictability, and I hope this isn't offensive, but the reality <laughs> of predictability when you have so many variables, again, the interdependent relationships that are happening on the field, then you take into account this playing surface, yeah. you know, the, the, the conditions if you're outdoors, and injuries that you know a little bit about and some things you don't know about, you know... Alex hasn't figured it all out yet. It, yeah. it, it's not a but, it's an and, and... In terms of making decisions, I love having analytics. I love having information because I will sometimes have a sense of something that I watch on tape that I can only validate if I see the numbers and hear the numbers. Or there are many times where there's a play. Like one of the favorite things, this is how archaic my analytics used to be. So when I started in 1992, one of the things I used to do when I was with the Cleveland Browns, we would get the 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 end-of-season stats, right? And this was before we actually were using computers for anything. And I would get those faxes in from the league, you know, the paper, and you'd have to copy it, and so, so you didn't, it didn't roll up on you, compile the numbers. And I would always look up special team stats. And I would look at special team stats, and it became one of those things where I would find the highest production tacklers in the country and start looking at them. Hmm. And without that, that's analytics, right? Yes. That's yeah. finding yes. the place. So mm -hmm. then I would go on tape and watch the players on tape. This is part of what helped us find Matthew Slater. Yeah. You know, Matthew Slater, his senior year had an outrageous 25 tackles, special teams tackles. His senior year was two-time <laughs> special teams player of the year. And we knew that. Mm -hmm. And we used that information to look at him on tape and to see what he was. Without those numbers, without that information, we would have known. We're talking to Scott Pioli, longtime NFL executive, three-time Super Bowl champ, two-time, as he reminded us, two-time Super Bowl loss, but five <laughs> times in the Super Bowls with the New England Patriots where he helped run personnel. More recently with the Chiefs and Falcons, now with CBS Sports. Scott, can you tell us a little bit about, since you're, you've got that insider view, I've been curious, what can you tell us about how out of the blue and how not out of the blue this year's 49ers team is. It seems like an organization that we felt had was well well run. It seemed like it ought to have been well run. They had some good pieces in place, but they just weren't performing. And then all of a sudden they've gone from zero to 60. Were you surprised at this year's team, or were you not surprised because of what you know about the organization? I, I was not surprised. Uh, not so much what I know about the, the organization, but what I know about Kyle Shanahan. Ah. But even though they were 4-12 and 12 last season? Yeah. Now, did I expect... Expect it to be what do they end up thirteen and three? Thirteen and three. Um, no, but I knew that they were going to be good. 
and here's the thing. They had this run of high draft picks, players that had developed. Kyle Shanahan, one of the things, you know, the things that he learned through his dad and his dad's system is the importance of developing players. He has a number of assistant coaches on his staff that are, are all about developing players. Here's the thing is, they did this. It took them three years to do this, but they built it to last. And that's the other thing is I watched them build this team. They built it to last and to have longevity, much like we were trying to do in New England. So we what, weren't, what does that mean, building it to last? Building it to last means that, that, that you don't go out and spend money wildly on free agency just to say we're one wide receiver. I was, you know, like when we were with the Cleveland Browns in 1995, you know, we lost the, the three times to the Steelers, lost the wild card game. We were convinced that we were just one player away, one wide receiver away from a championship. And we went out and signed Andre Rise and made him the highest paid wide receiver in the National Football League. Okay. You're never just one player right. away, right? right? Again, it goes back to that earlier conversation. It's never just one thing. You're never just this or never just that. And I saw how Kyle was building it. And, and the other thing is, Kyle's building a system. And the system that he's building, I know it's become a very cliche word, this whole word process. and word pro- He has a process. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts. And to build anything that's going to last, there needs to be a process. And you need to know exactly what the process is. This way, when you make a mistake, you fail. You look exactly at the time that happened. And then you ask 10,000 whys about why did we fail in this moment. And then you break that down. Again, I was convinced because Kyle has... Um, again, he built a system and people where he developed players, he developed a culture. It, and, and his culture is a different culture. And I say that with the greatest admiration. It was, it's similar in, but different to the Patriots culture where it's so easy that it's not easy. Hmm. And so, meaning like Bill's three rules, be on time, pay attention, work hard. That is really easy. But for some people, that just ain't uh-huh, easy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So... I, I hear you on Kyle Shanahan, and I believe you, but I do want to ask. This time last year, we were praising Sean McAvoy, and he's a little bit, the, the light's not quite as bright on him now. And so how do we know? What's the difference between, between, between Sean and Kyle, and why might we expect, I mean, maybe we should be so short Sean now, but what, how can we know this isn't just a one-year blip on Shanahan? Well, I, I think the teams are constructed differently, right? The sa- again, because there's so much that goes into this. The way they built these teams from a salary cap standpoint, the Rams went out and spent so much money and pressed themselves so far up against mm-hmm. the cap. Oh, and then, by the way, they had to go out and pay their rookie, their, their quarterback that was under a rookie contract, had to go pay him a real salary, which means less money for other positions, which means when you spend less money in other positions, you better be drafting really, really well previously so some of those young players have come up in the system but this is a team the rams that all they have done is trade away their draft picks i'm afraid for the rams and i like sean um and and respect him but i think the way that this roster was constructed and the way that they built it or or they built it and dissembled it at the same time where they 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 went after big money guys that were good players but that was going to last whether they intended it or not, it certainly seems like a team philo- a, a team culture towards more immediacy. They're not really building for yeah. longevity. And, and I think that's a, I want to talk about this because it's a great yeah. point. That's something that is changing in the NFL because I think employees within the NFL are very different. And there are people I remember when Bill and I were planning and before we were going to the New England Patriots, listening to him and talking about and he taught me the idea of building something great that is so great not only does it last long but it outlasts any one of us hmm. and it's a, it's a, a system that will out that is true greatness mm-hmm. right that's what bill walsh did and he had people after him that that, that were successful as well 
One of the things that's very interesting, as I see, is an unfortunate trend in the NFL, is because these jobs have become so, the hiring and firing happens so quickly that there's a lot of young general managers, there's a lot of young head coaches that really don't care truly about the future. They know that if they win now, A, they're going to get paid, they're going to make money, they're going to become celebrities, and all this happens. They, I got mine, how you doing? But that's not their <laughs> fault. No, I'm saying this, yeah. and I say that, and it sounds like a criticism of those people. However, the big part of that is they have become that way because this is what the league has made them through the owners who are constantly firing people right, right. after so not a long enough time. Uh, really, you would talk about ownership, uh, ownership creating a culture of like trust, like you were yes. sort of talking about with the Patriots. Why is this, it's a chicken-egg thing. Why yeah. is this so hard? Why yeah. It feels like when you look around the league, these guys are, have been so successful in life, the owners, and they've got, you know, why is it so hard? Why is it so, it seems like so few organizations do it well, reliably, year over year. So few have this philosophy, it seems. Why is this so hard, Scott? I don't know. Gosh, I wish I had enough money to be an owner to get Because <laughs> right now, I got all the answers, yeah. right? You're not working to lead. You become an expert. I got yeah. all the answers It's easy now, for us <laughs> on the sidelines. It's true. We're talking to Scott Pioli, longtime NFL executive, uh, three-time Super Bowl champ with the New England Patriots. Obviously, Scott, this has some relation to this game, a direct relation. Do you think if you had to choose, would you build your team to be like Kansas City, which people would say is a great offensive team with talent over the field, all over the field, or would you focus fundamentally on defense? Now, analytics has said we're now a passing NFL, and that if you force San Francisco to have to pass, they're going to struggle in this game. If you had to invest, salary cap, are you, would you rather have the best offense or the best defense? And I know you're going to tell me, why does it have to be either or? But, <laughs> may, but how would you think about it? Because well, analytics you says we're an offensive league. But you, you have to understand when you start a team, you're not just going to start from ground zero. I, I mean, I understand the question, but the reality is you're never going to start from grand, ground zero. Do you inherit a really good quarterback, and then do you build your team around that offense? Do you have a great quarterback that you can build – you know, again, I think you have to be adaptive. You have to be able to adapt. I would personally go in, I believe, and I love great defenses, but I'm not going to ignore a great quarterback just to have a great defense. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think – So you're, and, and this is the thing. You know, we get into these things that are trends. You know, we always talk about this as a passing league. And, yes, it is much more of a passing league, but that's when a lot of really smart people get so myopic and think about this has to be about offense – and then you go out there and you watch these defenses that shut teams down, even if it only takes – you only have to shut a team down once, you know, one week to win a game. And so to me, I don't – I'm not answering your question because I don't – I wouldn't approach it with the, with the idea that it has to be any one way because, you know, we didn't know how we were going to build the Patriots. All of a sudden, this six-round draft pick that we had became a pretty darn good quarterback. <laughs> so we built a team around that. So, you know, but, but the best successes of that team with Tom Brady – has been when they've had good defenses. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it ties back to what you said earlier, which I think was so well put. You said people tend to say it's either paramount or not important at all. Right. One of the two. And they can't understand that actually a lot of things matter, and they all kind of matter in the middle, and the situations push these things around. Right. right. I mean, as a, just standing as a non-football uh, player sort of in general, I have to point out that a point saved is the same as a point scored. So from a philosophical point, they've got to be equal. So we talk about leverage. Right, so if you have to invest or train or, or acquire players, I think it's generally believed that you can do better on the offensive side than you can on the. You get more return, I guess, oh, out of an investment he, uh, on the offensive side. Is that not right? I would invest 
<laughs> Once you get past that rookie quarterback contract, you invest in your quarterback. The other thing Afterwards? you have to here's what you have to invest in. In my my feelings, your head coach. Mm. Ah. Go mm. out and find a good head coach and pay your head coach because that is the ultimate leader at the end of the day. If you, and you want know to get it, pay your offensive line coach because right. the way this game is. Yep. And pay your secondary coach, and then from you know th- those I those see. salaries are just as important. Those roles are just as important as some of the players on the field. If yeah. you were running your coaching search this off season, or if you would have mm. been running it for the last month or whatever, what how would you have gone about it? Oh, I would have, um, especially since you put such priority mm. on it, and yet it's a hard thing to do. So, uh, you, you, the thing is, you immediately do. You know who are the candidates, uh, and that thing is, you have to understand and know who the the, the candidates are. I think, you know, wh- one of the reasons, you know, so we keep talking about it was wonderful that I was a part of success in New England. I was also part of a, a of a, an abysmal failure. I failed in Kansas City. Mm. And one of the things that I didn't get right there was finding the right partner. And it wasn't the partner's fault. It wasn't the head coach's fault. It was me not partnering with the right person. Mm. And, you, you know, and then finally found the right partner and then I was on my way out the door with Andy Reid. Mm. You know, I hired Andy and then left. And to me, I think you have to know the pool of players, and I think as, as an executive, as a general manager to be, I think you have to spend as much time evaluating the pool of coaches, pro and college, and up-and-coming coaches, mm-hmm. as you do the players around the league. Mm-hmm. Speaking of college uh, one of the, and player development, one of the things that I notice when I'm here is how young some of the players are because they are yeah. actually very young. How about They're Mahomes, not, right? <laughs> yes, all of them, yeah. 19, 20, uh, 21. And, and in, this is, these are children. I mean, these are, these are the age of our college students. And so how, what, what is, how do you take into that account? And how it seems to me that's very important to take a 20-year-old. A yes. 20, the difference between a 20 and a 24-year-old is really vast. And we've been thinking about Joe Burrow, who's, who's yes. 23, 24. He's one of the oldest college uh, quarterbacks to, to mm-hmm. come out in recent memory. And he's extremely good. What do you think let me, of that? Let me add, let well, me add one, one word to that. You yeah. use this term talking about um, Kyle about developing players. And I was going to say, what does that mean? So this is probably connected to what Adi is saying, this emphasis on developing players. What exactly? It is. Well, develop, player development is very different now because free agency has changed it, right? Because you can lose players after four years. But I want to go back. This is a great question because this is maybe where, again, the confluence of thinking and understanding of analytics, you're telling me about the age of the number uh, of the players that are coming in and how old they are. I agree completely. However, Everyone sitting up here knows right now that there are certain people wiser beyond their years, more experienced beyond what their years are. So there are Mm. certain 23-year-olds who really have life experiences and a maturity level, right? So to me, I focus more on the maturity. Tom Brady's Mm. maturity at 23 years old was off the charts. Patrick Mm. Mahomes? So the, the numbers matter. You can't forget the number because at some point in time you're going to say, "Wow, this guy—he's so—he—he's he, so much older than his years." But then he, the, the player is going to turn around and skunk you sometime because he's going to act like a 23-year-old rather than the 30-year-old mm-hmm. that he normally behaves. And does that make any sense? Where you know we've yeah, all said and we've yeah. met people that are wiser yeah. and smarter beyond their years because they've had this experiential life that I don't know. I, I could take up too many hours no, here. No, yeah, it's, yeah. it's terrific, and we thank you for the yeah. time that you've given us. We will hope for a conversation in the future because we could all we happily also do, sit here. We oh do my. a two-hour show, by the way, every week of the year, not from here. So Sign we can up. have you up yeah. on any time. All right, Scott Pioli, thank you for taking time out of your Super Bowl. Long-time NFL executive, delighted to have the chance to talk with you. Thank you. All right, fellas, we've got just a few more minutes here as we wrap up our time down here on Radio Row. Curious what you're thinking, what the team is thinking about going into this game. Anything in particular, fellas? 
You know, what's interesting about this game, and this happens to me, in fact, you guys appropriately criticized me about this in last uh, year's game when we were doing the analysis. When I came sitting down here in the set today, I was so convinced, I even said to Shane on the way over here, I'm betting the Chiefs. I don't see how they can lose this game. And the more we're talking, the more I'm listening yeah. to people. Um, forget Adi's point. No, like no, no, the, forget Adi's point yeah. also about the just huge variance. Yeah. The more I'm hearing these experts talk, I'm starting to think, you know, maybe I'm missing something on San Francisco here. This just reminds me of last year. Like, I yeah. loved, you know, I loved certain teams in a game, and now the more I'm hearing, the more I'm, I can see why the spread is basically only one or one and a half, because as a layperson, I'm thinking, how can Kansas City not be a six-point favorite in this game? Wow. Now I see it. Well, you know, and I, of course, Massey Peabody doesn't have them as a six-point favorite either. Has them at two and a half. And, yeah, uh, a little less than that, but 2.3. And, but we're, right, we're kind of in the middle of the quantitative systems. We have some folks who are up there around three. A lot of folks are, you know, one, two. So that's, that's just a little bit higher than the line. But most, I mean, the line, the, mark, the quantitative systems are all looking for a slight Casey edge. But as you guys have said, that small an edge is quickly swamped by the variance. And so we really have room to make any prediction you want to make. So you kind of have to step I think I, I feel like I need to step outside of the model. I think I would, I'm leaning, I have no trust in this whatsoever. What I'm about to say, I have no conviction about. But my intuition is towards the Niners. And it's, it's, all, it's kind of just a, it's just kind of a um, counter the prevailing wisdom. It's like, it's, it, rather than it's all about the, off, the Kansas City offense, I think that San Francisco defense might be able to do it. I think they might be able to do better with Jimmy G than many folks think. It's just one of these things that fade the hype a little bit, and um, I, the way those guys have dominated coming through the playoffs is, is pretty impressive on the NFC side. I'm going to respond slightly. Uh, my intuition actually is non-existent, so I'll have to go with what the data sort of suggests, and I think what I've read, what I've talk to is that offense really is when a push comes to shove defense against offense you go with offense so i'm going to be on i'm going to be on the casey side and i'm with the models that are on the higher side without having any knowledge to I, go I by. hear you I, yeah. I i love let me just say again what scott pioli said half an hour ago about we tend to say it's either paramount paramount or not important at all yeah i just so completely agree with that and so i can i can understand the data and i can believe that offense is more important than defense without saying therefore this will happen the way I'm, uh, yeah, and I, and I, I do want to kind of, you know, whatever we decide today, you know, and it sounds like we're all pretty uncertain about the game. Let's all remember this uncertainty yeah, in a right. week when we're back discussing <laughs> what actually happened, because right. then something will happen. Oh, and be like, well, obviously that was going to happen, well, we're, or yeah, that's clear that was going to happen. Let's all remember the uncertainty we have. I think we are very good at that. At oh, not, I think we're better than most. We're better than most. But I, st- I think even we, though, we're 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 more sophisticated, perhaps. Uh, than a lot of kind of, you know... Well, I know you'll yell at me if we do the other side, Well, right? let's imagine... <laughs> but we, would, we, even we're prone to narratives. I always like to think of the following way. Maybe this is a good, uh, not a good way to think about it. But let's imagine both of these teams play to their maximum potential. So let's imagine that there's going to be some randomness, but both of these teams play as well as they can play. I just keep thinking to myself, Kansas City wins this game if both of these teams play as well as they can play. And so the, I have nothing else to go on but that. And That's it. the other thing I, I thought about is I have to. Last week's game against Tennessee, to me, is not uninformative about this week's game. Let me say why. Derrick Henry, who was here, we just saw him on the set, was running through people. Well, Kansas City didn't let that happen. I don't think Kansas City is going to let 
San Francisco only run the ball, sorry, throw the ball eight times in the game. I think they're effectively, they've shown they can stop the run. As a matter of fact, Derrick Henry was the number one running back in the NFL this season. Yep. I think they can stop the run, and they're going to make Garoppolo throw the ball 30 times, now, and we're going to find out. No, no, I think Garoppolo's a lot better. So, so, so we're, 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 ba- we're basing that KC can stop the run on just their last game, not the previous 18 or so we saw from them this Actually, season. Actually, well, let's be clear, though. No, no, we can talk about the – no, no, it's not true, though. Shame. So we can talk about the non-stationarity. So in the last six weeks of the season, they were a top-10 defense in the NFL. Mm-hmm. So you're, I'm not saying you're wrong. You yeah. want to include the first 12 games, and yes. I want to make an argument – you know, but I want to make an argument for non-stationarity that their defense got healthier no, and their defense has played and, better. Not one game, six games. And it fits within your hypothetical where you're kind of like, if both teams – basically play very, very well, I give the edge to KC, and I completely agree with that. I just think San Francisco, you know, if, if, if there was a team that could force Patrick Mahomes to not play very well or to not have it would be his best game, it would be San Francisco. Very good point. Can I, here, here, let me ask a, a form of base rates question. If you didn't know anything about the teams, you just knew that it was Andy Reid versus Kyle Shanahan, who would you take? Kyle Shanahan. I would, too. Yeah. And so would I, and I don't know. I, about only because I've, I've seen so many late-game shenanigans down to Andy Reid. Can I, can I throw something out also about Jimmy G, which is everyone seems to be very high on him, and it's the ratings of him, the traditional ratings of him, maybe some of the new ones that aren't so high on him. He doesn't grade as a, as a yeah. at least not, I don't mean pro football focus grades, but I mean but traditional grading doesn't grade top. Is that mostly because his team doesn't allow him to pass much, and so he doesn't have the numbers, the gaudy mm. numbers, or is that no. No. Or things standardized? <laughs> no, no. I, th- I think it's both. They, people see the throws. And by the way, remember, it's endogenous, Adi. His coach knows that he's right. not Patrick Mahomes. Okay. So let's do some a few quick, just on the way out here, a few quick over-unders. Um, <laughs> starting with the, with the most traditional over-under, the total. 55, I think, is market here. Over-under. Under. I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go over. Uh, let me say why. I watched San Francisco get shredded by a mediocre offense in Seattle this year. I don't think Seattle's offense was that great. I think Kansas City's going to put up a lot of points. I'm taking the over. I think, you know, I, maybe it's just me buying into this whole, like, this is going to be like a, a replay of the greatest offense against the greatest defense, like the 2007 Pats Giants Super Bowl. That was a low-scoring game. I'm with you, by the way. I'm taking I'm taking yeah. Niners and under, and I'm sure I'm wrong, but I'm going Niners and under because it feels over feels like a KC pick, by the way. So the, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm agree with you. That I'm, that, yeah. I'm still taking KC to win it, but I do okay. think it'll be a lower score right, game so are, than people are expecting. Are we going to do an over under who wins too? Can no, I can yeah, I, can yeah, I pair my yeah, my, go. my yeah. all right? Good, I have a chance to pair. So if I use my my instinct is KC, I want to go over, but I know that about one third of my NFL p- uh, predictions turn out right. So I, <laughs> that says I should just go with the opposite. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right, let's do a couple of real quick ones. I like this because I like the way Audie's going to talk about it. Largest lead of the game at any point above or below 14.5. Oh, wow. Now we can talk about just, Adi's trying to do statistical distributions in his head right now. Intuitively, intuitively the answer is no. Low. Yeah, I'd I'd go under on that, Intuitively it's low, but we might have wrong intuition on that. I I bet bet if Adi were to model it, we ended up saying, ah, it's about right. I think that the largest lead happens at the end, and that would mean about 14 points about a third of the time. So, therefore, I'm against 14 at any point. 
Okay. There I am. That's, that's, I like it. I'm not sure the lead happens at the end typically, but uh, but I uh, garbage yeah, points scored in the last yeah, few minutes. Oh, that, that, that's a scenario. Well, that yeah, counts no. towards the end. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm going to go under as well. I don't. I don't think under. either team goes up by 17 plus. Four, yeah, 17 plus. Okay. Yeah. I bet our intuition is a little bit too strong. That it, stronger than it should be. Okay. Uh, last serious one. Will there be a lead a lead change in the fourth quarter? Ooh. This this is like the. the, the I am uh, predicting. Uh, uh, I'm predicting a close, low-scoring game. So yeah, you think I'm going with it? Okay. I'm going no. I think Kansas City is going to be up big, and so I think <laughs> they'll have the lead and keep the lead. Yeah. Some strong positions here. Uh, it's my favorite theorem in probability and stochastic processes. The arc sine law. Everyone who is listening, long-time listeners, all know that I bring it up, which means that usually in in these formats, one team. It's very likely the one team goes ahead and stays ahead. Wow. And okay. if there's a change, it's going to be early. Okay. So. Okay. Finally, our final question here. Very, very serious. Very serious. Um, how many commercials with dogs in them? <laughs> the over-under here is oh, three, man, and, three w- and a half. Three and a half. I wish I knew the base rate. Um, like, are we trending more or less dog over time? Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to take the over. The a dog just has to appear somewhere in the commercial. It doesn't <laughs> have to be the focus yeah. of the commercial. Yeah. yeah, I'm taking the over. I'm taking the over. I'll take the under in the ones that I notice. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't think the dog will be the central well, character. You, you in, teach marketing. I know. You that's what I just marketing. said. Well, no, no we're going to have, have we're, <laughs> we're going to have PFF grade the commercials, and if there's a dog in there, they will find it. No, my comment was I don't think the dog will be the central character. Oh, the yeah. protagonist Is in more than I'm taking, I'm taking whoa, whoa. the over under the condition that we we, we mean see the dog, that's a dog. Right? There's just a just, dog the in the commercial. It doesn't have to be I'm going central. I'm going over, and I'm so pro dog right now. You can't even know it. Why? Why is that? Because my dog is the cutest dog in the goddamn world <laughs> <laughs> this that's this is an analytic show we're really bringing you the rigorous the rigorous stuff here all it right makes you fall apart doesn't it guys uh we've, we've done we've done a lot of conversations here down here on radio row you've had a chance to soak up the atmosphere looking forward to the game any final thoughts on the super bowl heading into the weekend I, I did not think that I would be so excited about a t- Super Bowl that I didn't have a strong rooting interest in. And, man, I'm excited for this Super Bowl. Maybe it's being here and soaking it up. Maybe it's just this particular matchup I find particularly compelling. But I, I am so jazzed about this. There's also some freedom in not having one of your teams That is in certainly it's like, true. It's going to be an emotionally safer game for it you. Is, my, it is. My, my two things are, again, the idea of, as similar to Shane, Offense against defense. It's kind of the, it's, you know, those I like that. And second, I like the thought that one of these two people is going to have redemption because Andy Reid has had not success in the Super Bowl. And of course, Kyle Shanahan was the offensive corner of the Falcons who made a number of mistakes at the end of that Super Bowl that yeah. if any of them they hadn't made, the Patriots wouldn't have won that Super Bowl. So wow. someone's going to get redemption, wow. and I like that angle. Well, I just can't wait to see. All the funky decisions that get made, and get, hope they give us a lot to talk about after mm-hmm. the show. That's how mm-hmm. after the game. That's and, what I. And root one for. thing to all our listeners, <laughs> I promise to tweet at least what I think are analytical mistakes during the game at our mm-hmm. Twitter handle at mm-hmm. WMoneyball. Okay. I will tweet often You're during the game. All right. I, I have some very non-analytics thoughts real quickly. Number one, I just love the Chiefs in the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years. They mm-hmm. played in two of the first four, and not since. So when we were kids and reading about those early games, those early Packers were floating around, the Raiders were floating around, the Chiefs were right there in the middle of all that stuff. They were one of the top AFL teams when the leagues merged. That's a ball. The other thing, Kyle Shanahan played college ball. Do you know where he played college ball? No idea. If I'm asking the question. When University of Texas at Austin? <laughs> there you go. There he, he goes. He was a receiver there, roomed with Chris Sims. Uh, they've also got a couple of Longhorns um, on their team, so there's that side. But i got to go. i got to pull. 
heart-wise, I got to pull for the AFL legacy and the first time there in 50 years with the Kansas City Chiefs. All right, guys, that has been a special edition of Wharton Moneyball. Two hours down here on Radio Row, a number of terrific guests. Fantastic to have the whole crew. On behalf of Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Kate Massey, our producer, Maddie Datz, very special assistant today, Michelle Young. We appreciate your listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. If you're a Springsteen fan, you just found the promised land. Hear rare interviews and performances. Live concerts. Is there anybody alive out there? Celebrity guest DJs. This is Rob Lowe. Hey, baby, it's little Steven here. And more exclusives when listening to Bruce Springsteen's channel. Welcome, Bruce Springsteen, to E Street Radio, your home away from home. Great to be here. E Street Radio, Sirius XM Channel 20. Wharton Moneyball. There's something called the large deviations distribution. The basic idea is that you want to ask yourself, what causes unusually unlikely events? And how does that happen? And what's the distribution on the individual components that make it up? And basically, there's two alternatives. Either one unbelievably unlucky thing happens, or lots and lots of little things. And it turns out in the theory of large deviations that it's the latter. Lots and lots of little things that break your way create the large deviation. Wharton.